Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Yes. Stand if you're able. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. The word of our God who is with us. Thanks be to God. Uh, the plan this week was to, uh, to go with the gospel that Ken Sr. read for us. But we, we switched some things this week. I don't know how many of you have ever... Uh, how many of you have ever uh, paid attention to our Wednesday noon prayer devotions? Uh, we we have been doing it for a while and, and are having a ton of fun with it and can plan to continue to do it. Um, by the way, Tabitha was very rude this week. She decided to just show up and it gave you time to sleep. So, uh, which, which made us think, if anyone would like to participate on Wednesday noon prayer and devotions, you're welcome to come, but we need advanced warning next time. So we can have enough mics prepped and everything. And um, if it's more than just the staff, you can come and we'll just kind of circle up and make it happen. Um, but please, again, uh, give us some advance warning. But this week, I, and I, it wasn't anything really planned. We just kind of nonchalantly did it. Um, for a year and a half, we have been praying the, t the texts that we read the, the week before the, at service. We've been praying those texts. And for some reason this week, I don't know why, uh, I, we, f we switched it and we prayed in advance. And so we began last Wednesday praying these texts um, as we came to Sunday. And, and so I just had this, this Nehemiah text has been marinating with me. And so I made, this, I made this logo last week when I was in Chelan and I was really proud. Anyone like it? It's kind of vintage. Yeah, I like it. If you don't, I don't want to know about it. Um, I made it because I, I figured between this Sunday and, and the beginning of Lent, we were just going to stay in the gospel sections of the lectionary, which all seemed to focus on the teaching, the early teaching kind of sermon moments of Jesus. And so I thought it'd be fun to do a sermon series called the Original Sermon Series. Is that cute? I thought it was cute. It's what? It's meta. Thank you. That makes me feel cool. I'm so meta. <laughs> Chuck, do you know what it means to be meta? Chuck, if you pay attention, you too can be meta someday. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not sure I fully know either. Uh, so, but, but okay, so here's the thing though. 
the problem is, is after I made the logo and decided that's going to be our sermon series, Nehemiah kept marinating with me. And so you'll have to bear with me. And I will try to, at the end, connect the dots. Uh, and Emily, you'll have to tell me, you studied theology. Do you have a theology degree? An undergrad. An okay. So ask Emily afterwards, and she'll tell you that what I'm about to do, you shouldn't do. But I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to do two texts in one sermon, and it's going to be great. We're going to make sermons great again. So, Nehemiah chapter 8. I've got to get my table back for my coffee. Nehemiah chapter 8. By the way, I should tell you that part of the reason we're... So... Uh, Quick math, what is that? Uh, 156 Sundays. It literally only appears one out of every 156 Sundays. And so if we're going to talk about Nehemiah, this is our one shot for three years. So that's partly why. Better not screw it up, Jeffrey says. And you would be right. Never underestimate my ability to screw things up, though. Ezra chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh, not Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. This was the original water gate. That's a good one, right? I like it. The water gate. They told Ezra, teacher of the law, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. So you all think 30 minutes is too long. We could go daybreak until noon. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Sylvia listened attentively to the sermon. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and he was tall and had a man bun. And as he opened it, the people all stood. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. I expect that response at the end of this sermon. Amen. It's not, it's, it's, it's just that. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Let's skip to verse 8. They read the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law because the sermon was so profound. Again, I expect that. Nehemiah said, and not weeping because you're ready for it to end, but weeping because it's profound. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy the choice food and the sweet non-Nazarene drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy 
to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. I read that Wednesday. And it began, it began to marinate with me. And I couldn't get away from it. As much as my cool sermon series centered around the Gospels, I couldn't get away uh, from this text in Nehemiah. So, so I want to run through it real quick. Um, there's a few things I think we need to say uh, to kind of set the tone. Uh, the first is that Ezra and Nehemiah are two books in our kind of Protestant Bibles. Not so in the kind of earliest manuscripts and scrolls that they essentially would have been one book. Uh, it's kind of like The Hobbit, right? The Hobbit, if you read The Hobbit, is one book but three movies. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book that apparently we Protestant folks are somewhere along the way they decided, do you know when? They decided to make it, instead of one book, they decided to make it into two. So, there's that. Uh, and so it's a narrative, it's a narrative that comes on the heels of Israel. Um, they're in exile, Babylon had come in and, and wiped them out and taken them over, but Babylon then had been wiped out by uh, the Persians. I think Cyrus was the first one. And so you have this kind of new resetting of the kind of geopolitical climate uh, that is going on in that day. And if you kind of want a framework, and I, by the way, I would totally recommend you to read this. I, last night as I ate dinner, I, I put my iPhone headphones in and I listened to Ezra and Nehemiah. It's good stuff. It's like, I would say, House of Cards meets Game of Thrones. It's good stuff. You should like totally listen to it. Now, if you're going to do that, number one, Somehow take a picture of you doing it and send it to me so I know somebody actually listens. But number two, just know there's like three sections in, throughout the two books where you might want to skip ahead. Sections where they mention just a lot of names or they mention kind of all the economic resources that they use. And you have my blessing that when those sections come, whether you're reading or listening, just hit the little 15-second advance button a couple times or just skip ahead in your reading. But seriously, Game of Thrones, uh, House of Cards, do it. Read it. It's very, very interesting. Essentially, the book begins with Cyrus the Persian uh, sitting with his, uh, you know, his, his council, his chief of staffs, and uh, asking questions. H how do we up our approval rating? How do we make sure my approval rating doesn't hit 33%? Anybody? Anybody? Come on! Come on! You've got, these are jokes! 30, never mind. How do we make sure I don't give a two-hour press conference? We're friends. Come on, people. If you're, not, if you're on this side, for four years you were on the other side of it. Ken Sear, you had to put up with the jokes about the other side, so you can appreciate these jokes now, right? We can make fun of all administrations everywhere. Let's, okay. Okay, so Cyrus the Persian, he, uh, he wants to, uh, uh, you know, help his approval rating, and so how is he going to do that? He decides the best tactic for how to get my approval rating to go uh, through the roof is the immigration policy. And so for Cyrus the Persian and his immigration policy, it's going to be different than the Babylonians. The Babylonians, what did they do? They took the Hebrew people into exile. And their immigration policy is essentially, I'm going to force them to be Babylonians, and I'm going to destroy their home and their town and their villages. Cyrus the Persian takes an alternative route, and he essentially comes up with a policy that says, hey, if you're kind of from the Hebrew folks, you can go back to your homeland and not just go back. You don't just have our blessing to go back and rebuild. But not only that, we're going to fund the thing. 
And so in this edict, he begins to like create this uh, massive response, uh, a stimulus of sorts, a build back better of sorts. And in, in this kind of economic recovery for the Hebrew land, he makes sure that uh, cinema and mansion are, are a part of it and that the, you know, the filibuster can't be. <laughs> Guys, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. This is fun. But seriously, I'm telling you, go read the book. It is, it is so political. And so Cyrus the Persian, essentially, his edict is go back, rebuild, build it back, build it back better, here's your funds. And part of the sections that I just gave you a blessing to read are essentially like this long list of here's where you're going to get the resources. It's, a, it's just like a bill that would be on the Congress or Senate. It's so long and so boring and you actually don't read what all is in it. And so they go back and they begin to build. And if you kind of follow the, the first sections of Nehemiah, you, you, they begin to do the thing, and there is this kind of double reaction. You have the new folks who are really excited to do the darn thing, and they're super stoked, and they're partying and having a good time. And then you have some of the older folks who, who remember the way it used to be, the good old days, the days we wanted to get back to. And there's this tension because you have the young folks who are rebuilding the thing, and you have some older folks who are mourning and wailing, the text actually says, because it's not all that it used to be. And so there's this, the, the Bible at the end of, it's either chapter 1 or chapter 2, you, you have this kind of mass noise that has accumulated, and the text says we don't really know if it's, um, it's more happy noise or it's more sad noise because it's this hot mess of noise. It's interesting, and by the way, I totally think they should make a TV show of this. So after The Chosen finishes, and then I'm convinced they need to move to the book of Acts, then they should double back and do Ezra and Nehemiah. Because the first season essentially should be this beginning of building back. And there's this tension inside of it because you have these people that come to them, these people that had inhabited the land post-exile, that were essentially their, their people, their cousins, their brothers, their sisters, but they hadn't been taken into exile. And so there's, even though they have like, if you went to Ancestry.com, they would have the same ancestry, there's like this bias going on. Because they were people that had been left behind and hadn't been taken into exile. And so they come, they say, let us help you build back. And the people who would come back from exile are like, no, we want nothing to do with you. And so in this kind of political, social intrigue of a story, you have this epic scene where people have come back to the land. They've been funded to do the thing. They're a bit happy. They're a bit sad. There's kind of a mixed mess of, of feelings. And you have these people that have come and offered to help, and they don't want it. And so you have this kind of hostile climate of people who don't get along, you know, like 45% are in, 45% are out, and then you got the 10% of the people that you got to convince that, that one way or the other. Does that sound like anything? Then, because you know every four years you have to have an election, and there's a risk of a different administration coming into power, right? Then you have administration change, and you move from Cyrus the Persian, you move to Xerxes. Dad, I really think if anybody, if everyone else is asleep, you've got to be liking this, right? This is, oh, so, so political, so juicy. Thank you, Nicholas. Ken Steve, are you asleep yet? Ken Steve likes it. This is great. This is my favorite Sunday ever. Um, so Xerxes comes. And then you have, and, and this thing happens, you have these people that wanted to help build the temple, and they were told no, and now they're ticked. And so what do they do? They go to Xerxes, and they say, hey, 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 you should check out those people who are rebuilding the temple, 
you should look into the history. It's not good. If you allow them to follow through, it is going to come back to bite you. Just take a look at everything we know about that place. Look at their land. Look at their history. It is not going to be good for your administration. It may feel good now. The approval rating may be going through the skyrockets now. But, but if you let this go, that sucker's going to dip. And so, so Xerxes listens and then, um, uh, how do we say it? Uh, he, uh, I don't have the good political words. He just undoes, uh, he undoes it. What is it? Executive order. He, he issues an executive order that undoes that which Cyrus had done. And essentially, the reconstruction project and all that is, is no more. It's, it's stopped. Um, well, again, this is probably season two of the story. You have another administration change. I think there's like four in total, maybe five. I don't have all the details. But you go from Xerxes to Darius. Everyone say Darius. Yeah, Darius. I'm just making sure you're awake. Darius now gets in power, and, and, and in the midst of the way the story goes, Darius catches word of this old uh, project that had been happening, and then it was stopped, and apparently Darius wants to create a bit of separation um, in terms of legacy from Xerxes, and so Darius, by the way, you totally know, like, if you went from how did Bush do things to Obama, then how did Obama do things to Trump, and how did Trump do things to Biden, like, this is just the way it appears to work. Every administration wants to leave their own legacy, and how do you leave your own legacy? Well, part of you, what you do is you differentiate yourself than the legacy before, and so Darius doubles back down on this project, and they now get to continue uh, to build. Ezra gets to go, gets the blessing to go and to, to piggyback on the building now with like the religious movement. We're going we're gonna to have revival. We're going to teach the Torah. We're going to bring church back. We're going to have some church planning and it's going to be great. And somewhere in the story, and I don't exactly have all the details and when because at some point I fell asleep last night listening to this in my headphones, but at some point in the story, Nehemiah enters in. So you had, you had an initial dude who wanted to do the initial building of the temple, and I totally forgot his name. If somebody wants to look it up, you can yell it out. You have Ezra, who has deeply passionate about the kind of worshiping life of the community. And then you have Nehemiah, who now wants to come and piggyback on both of those things by building the city walls and kind of doing some city um, inhabiting, uh, uh, constructing of all that is going on in Jerusalem. And this leads to a revival. So Nehemiah and Ezra, what we read today, you get to chapter 8, they gather all the people in the original water gate, and they have a big old worship service, and they read from uh, the, the Torah. I, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they read the whole thing. If they read from daybreak to the, like, six hours, who knows? But they read, and the people start mourning. I mean, it's, they're having church. They're having altar calls. And at some point, they say, okay, don't cry. Now it's time. Let's throw a party. Let's get the best wine. Let's get the best pepperoni pizza, only not with pepperoni because they're good Hebrew people. And let's just, I mean, let's, let's throw a party. And you, you're thinking, yeah, Sylvia, let's throw a party and invite the pastor over. I had to work that in. And you, were, you would be thinking at the end of this event, we have planted the thing. 
We are back. Israel's back on the map. I know we still got kind of the Persians we're dealing with, but essentially we've gotten everything we've wanted. We've got the temple. We've got the walls. We've got the worshiping community. We even got a little bit of the social justice going on. If you look at what Nehemiah says, don't just create um, pepperoni pizza and wine for you, but make sure you have enough for the people that don't have enough. I mean, we're back on the map, baby. Too much coffee today, by the way. Jesse, am I that boring? Do you not like this? Do you not like this sermon? Do you not like this sermon? You're like, you don't like my coffee shop idea? Oh, okay, cool. Because you like the coffee shop idea. <laughs> um, yeah, they're leaving in droves. Oh, my goodness. Josh, if you could change the camera so no one online sees them leaving. I don't want people to think that anything bad about the sermon. Uh, so here's the thing. I know I'm going too long, and I'll start the sermon soon, I swear. <laughs> What's so funny? Nehemiah decides to take a business trip back to Persian headquarters. And he's kind of doing his business work, and they're hanging out, and they're doing their thing. Again, go read it. House of Cards, Game of Thrones, it's great. And they're doing their thing, and ultimately Nehemiah finishes up his business, and he, he wants to head back, and he wants to see his little pet project and how things are going. And if you read somewhere in the neighborhood of Nehemiah, chapters 11 through 13, Nehemiah gets back, and what he finds— But let me, actually, let me stop there. Let me stop there. Can I stop there? Can you—this is why I should have had notes. I should have stopped there, because forget I just said all of Nehemiah and his business trip and coming back. If I had stopped there, if I'd done what I should have done, if I had simply switched my notes over to see where I was in the sermon, that was the sermon if I had stopped studying come Friday. That was the sermon. And then we would have made the transition to the three bullet points. And the three bullet points are what would it look like for a people in the body of Christ who are in a type of exile, COVID-19, right? What would it be to be a people who reignited the call to... to to participate in the building of our, our spaces. And, and especially to ask the question, what does that look like for us who are at the end of a development? But we're not, by the way, we're not at the end because we actually, we'll, we'll have some hard numbers in the next two or three weeks. Um, we probably need to raise another twenty to 50000 to finish all the projects. Now, before you get shocked about that, you shouldn't be because remember when the city hijacked $200,000 of our money a couple years ago? Okay, so you shouldn't be mad. We, we actually thought we were getting, and if you would have done the math with our partners, it probably would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of us of 125 to 150,000. But, but remember, the city imposed on us some kind of legislation that was enacted after we started our development. So, so when you hear that number that we probably need to raise another 20 to 50,000, in all honesty, the reality that we only need to raise that and not 150 means we've done really, really well. But nonetheless, this was going to be the sermon where just like Ezra and Nehemiah, I was going to say, and isn't it time for us to build the back better and let's go raise the extra money and we can finish the windows. We can finish the carpet and the wood floors. We can finish the floors downstairs. We can finish the water garden. We can take the cool garden and take it to the next level. And then I was going to pivot from that and not only that, but we are going to be like Ezra. We're going to reteach the Bible. We're going to start our podcast. We're going to get to know the scriptures again. And Sylvia is going to weep at the end of every sermon as she runs to the altar because the sermons are so great, right? Sylvia, amen. 
And then we're going to pivot from that to Nehemiah. And we're not just going to be concerned about the church building and not just concerned about the Bible teaching, but we're also going to be concerned about inhabiting our own neighborhoods and the ways in which we contribute to the needs of our neighbors and, and those around us who have things that we can help with. And it was going to be such a good sermon. David Dunn, you are going to be a Pentecostal after this sermon. That would be interesting. I would love that. Oh, man, dancing like King David. Oh. Here's the problem. Nehemiah goes on a business trip in chapters 11 through 13. He comes back, and what does he find? It's a cluster muck. All the work. All the work. The work, the work on the temple, the work on the, the religious lives, the work on the city walls. I mean, it, it's not that it had all been destroyed again, but they hadn't lived into what they thought they could have been coming out of their little revival service. They'd married foreign wives again, which we, I didn't even remember to talk about that. I, today we'd call that racism, but in that culture, you, we, yeah, we won't go down that road. They, they hadn't honored the temple. They had essentially taken the temple, which was to be for worship, and they, you know, they, they let somebody live there. Who lets people live in church buildings? <laughs> that was a yeah, you, way to pay attention. Thank you. They hadn't cared for the worshiping lives. And so Nehemiah comes back. By the way, Jeffrey, do I have, hit the next slide. I think I had a, a slide that I was supposed to show at the beginning. Jeffrey, where'd you go? Can somebody hit the next slide? Where is Jeffrey? Oh, man, I'm going to... It's lucky it's his birthday. I can't be mad on your birthday. Thank you, Mark. Can you hit the next slide again? There we go. Look at all this. These are books. If you went onto Amazon today and you Googled, like, leadership and Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find all these books on Nehemiah Factor, 16 Characteristics, Rebuild the Walls, Leadership for Greatness, uh, Overcoming Fear and Discouragement. What See, this is how we think about Nehemiah and Ezra. The problem is it's, it's such a bad interpretation of how the scripture actually says it. Next slide, Mark. Thanks. Because the way Nehemiah and Ezra say it is they failed miserable. Nehemiah comes back from his business trip and he starts cussing out people. He starts ripping people's hair out. Go read the text. He's pissed. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in a sermon. Oh, go back. Uh, okay, just let it, it's fine. That's how Nehemiah felt. His heart became black. There we go. Because everything they had given themselves to seemingly went for nothing. Okay, now we can start the sermon on Luke. It's interesting that Jesus shows up in his church and he preaches from Isaiah. It's interesting a little bit that he doesn't go to the Torah like Nehemiah and Ezra did. It's interesting that before he goes to his own hometown synagogue, what does he do? He goes to, to his, he goes to his cousin's revival service where he enters into the waters of baptism. So where Ezra and Nehemiah go back to kind of the kingship of Israel, the temple, the David times, the Solomon times, where does Jesus go back to as he begins his ministry? He goes back to the Exodus liberation story, a complete reset. Yeah. And what else does he do? 
He pulls not from the law, but he pulls from the prophetic voices that talk about the liberation of the oppressed, the recovery of sight of the blind, that all those who were, uh, those who were imprisoned were let go. And the way Luke wants to tell the beginning, the origins of this Jesus story is that he, that which Israel failed to live into, let's, in fact, let's go back farther, that which Adam and Eve failed to live into in a garden, that which Abraham's ancestors failed to live into and ultimately found themselves in slavery, that which those who were enslaved and then became free failed to live into because they ultimately wanted a king and then ultimately went into exile, that which in Ezra and Nehemiah generation failed to live into because they thought they had it going, but then when they came back from a business trip, it all went for naught. Luke wants to say, this Jesus who is the Christ comes. And what does he say as he's opening the scroll of Isaiah and he's reading the text of the lectionary of that day? He says, not someday this will be revealed or this fulfilled. He says, today. He pronounces He pronounces reality into existence. Lorenzo, would you say, would it be fair to say that I am not very Pentecostal? Um, oh, I don't know. You would think I'd be half and half? Okay, okay. So I am not, I, 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 am, I know some of you miss the good old days of, of uh, uh, standing when we sing, and uh, I'm guessing if we took a poll, there's probably about 15% of you that'd be like, can we get rid of couches in the sanctuary? I, it's, I'm all about this. This is like my jam, and I'm all about sitting during singing. But that first song you sang, I had to stand. And not just like, not just stand, but I had the mic and I was doing like the old school Michael Anderson where I was kind of like dancing with my hands, but not so much that anyone noticed because I was jamming to that blessing. And when we were blessing our kids, man, I was thinking Tanner Parker. And then I was looking at Josh next to me and I was thinking Addie and Charlie. And then I looked over and Andy was standing in the corner. I was thinking uh, Noel and Ethan and Andra. And I just started going down the list of all the kids and like this, like we were blessing. And so I may be crazy and this may be a little Pentecostal, but I actually felt like as we were singing that song and I was wildly off key, but I didn't care that, that as we were naming the blessing that we like, there was a changing of ultimate reality in the naming of that. I think that's what Jesus was doing. Reflecting on a tradition that had an Adam and Eve story, that had an Exodus story, that had an exile story, that had a Nehemiah and Ezra story, Jesus is entering into not just an old story to try and make it better. He is entering a new story and saying something provocative like, today it is reality. And my friends, that reality is our reality. If we're just going to try and be an Ezra and Nehemiah church, the development's kind of cool, but ultimately, it'll be for naught. If we're just going to try and be an Ezra and Nehemiah church, then I have like 25% of my sermons that I get done with like today. I'm like, that was fun! And then I have like 75% of them. I'm like, what am I doing? Here's the thing. We're not trying to be an Ezra and Nehemiah church. I don't even know if we're trying to be at church, like following the Ezra and Nehemiah. We're trying to follow Jesus, the Christ who arrives with a pronouncement of the liberation and restoration of all things that doesn't just begin someday, but actually begins to 
day. Amen? Amen. Father, help us. That is a bold reality and one we too often, we too often are not idealistic enough to actually believe and live into it enough. And so we sacrifice the boldness of that imaginative worldview for the sake of just doing our own thing. And when we do that, then as churches, we just sacrifice the hope inside that imaginative worldview for Ezra and Nehemiah religious communities. So would you capture our imagination with the vision of the Christ that says we can be a part of the participating of captives being released? prisoners set free, the recovery of sight for the blind, and that we can participate with the work of your Spirit doing just that today. So would you help the reality of today to come alive in our own homes and neighborhoods and relationships and workplaces? Help it to come alive in our hopes and our dreams in our broken spaces, in our hurts, in our pains, in our hopes, in our joys. In your name, amen.